Good morning and welcome to Soundbites, right here on the Mark Steiner Show, produced in Baltimore, out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And broadcast on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Today on Soundbites, we learn about urban farming and health initiatives taking place in the Park Heights community of Baltimore with Willie Flowers, Executive Director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance. That's coming up later in today's program. But first, I sit down with Baltimore Sun Environment and Weather Reporter Scott Dance to talk about two important issues, the latest on the health Chesapeake Bay and our harbor, specifically, and some interesting news about the decrease in pollution reporting and enforcement across the state of Maryland. Good to have you in the studio, Scott. Welcome. Thank you. Good to meet you at last, face yes. to face. Yes. Good to have you. So, so let's, let's talk. This, the failing grade piece is interesting to me, um, the failing the water quality report card. Um, Inner Harbor, Patapsco River, Gwynn's Falls. And, we, you know, it's over the years you follow this, and we've been covering this for a long time. And it seems it's always like one step forward, two step backwards in trying to get to the point where they actually meet the, the water, quality, water quality is happening again. Is that how you're finding it? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there are definitely signs of progress, you know, both in the harbor and in the greater Chesapeake Bay. Every time a new report card comes out, there's, you know, some positive signs, but then there will be a year with less positive signs, I guess. And um, yeah, so it's it's generally, I think, going in the right direction. And the environmentalists feel like, um, you know, everything that they've been doing in the in the bigger picture sense has been working, but, you know, still a lot. But I guess what it's, it's in the definition of working, so the, the idea of a swimmable, 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 fishable harbor. I mean, we're a long way away. I mean, when you look at the stuff that you've been covering about where we are with all this. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is definitely the sewage problems. Um, that's what they talked about the most in this report card that came out this week. Uh, and, you know, it's obviously it's not the first report to, to look at that. And, and it's sort of the most difficult problem because it is so expensive and so complicated to address. And, you know, the city can only do so much. You know, it can't kind of replace the entire sewer system in in you know a short amount of time or, or with any reasonable amount of money um so where's the money come from I mean, the, the money issue to let, let's just take the sewage issue the sewage situation yeah. we just saw another massive <laughs> sewage flow into the into the harbor and i'm sure today while it's raining right now it's happening we'll have again. another one right yeah um so do we know what it takes to really fix that and how much it would cost to stop that from happening uh i mean there there are so many different Problems within the sewer system that it's hard to give you a number for that. Like, do you think the, we're talking billions, um, hundreds of billions? Certainly, hundreds of millions. Yeah the the big project that, for example, the in the Healthy Harbor Initiative talked about in its report uh, is it's called the Headworks Project. It's this big project at the Back River Treatment Plant that mm-hmm. would help use uh, it would use hydraulics to basically get rid of this ten mile backup of sewage under the city. Um, so that's like I think at least a half billion dollar project on its own, and then on top of that, there's just you know leaky and broken and cracked pipes all over the city that also um, you know contribute to these massive sewer overflows. So who is is it? Would it be the, the city, state budget, federal budget? Who pays for this? Uh, I mean, the city you know has raised sewer rates a lot so really it's the ratepayers who are paying for a lot of it um i don't know all the i mean i assume you know there's some state and federal funding that that gets channeled through city dpw that might go to some of this but um yeah mostly it's it's just you know the city dpw's problem and county has the same issues 
Um, we can't forget that. The kind of exactly right. I mean, it's the same system. Right. The, the infrastructure is, you know, generally newer in the county, um, and also it's, you know, it's uphill from from the city, so they don't have as many issues um, with that. But and also they have. So the city has closed a bunch of these outflows. There's, there used to be 62 outflows that sewage would dump directly into waterways from, and the city's closed all but two of them. So those two are still leaking into the Jones Falls. And the county actually recently found out there are still 12 open, and those are not far from the city line. So that's still dumping into the Gwynn's Falls and the Herring Run. And so other. is there any – I was just curious. It's not in your article. I'm just curious if you, as you've been investigating this. Has, has, is there any thought of – uh, collaboration in terms of costs and doing these things between city and county and metropolitan wide, or is this still being done kind of extremely localized and, and not coordinated at all? Yeah, it seems to be still pretty localized. Um, I mean, the city and the county have separate consent decrees with the Environmental Protection Agency requiring them to do these sewer fixes, you know, obviously directed at water quality. Um, but but they're independent of each other, and no, I don't I don't see a lot of coordination. I mean, it's, it would seem to me that when you, you think of other countries when they attack these things, the, the the notion of metropolitan or city is the metropolitan area, I right? Say right, yeah. So the, the suburbs, the rural area, and the city itself in the center. But we're not, we don't think that way, <laughs> right? I mean, if you if you have uh, an issue in Baltimore County, you call Baltimore County, right, right, even right. though it's Baltimore City that sends you your your water and sewer bill. Right. But like, if your sewage backs up in the county, it's the county that comes, and same thing in the city. I mean, so so the the goal was twenty twenty for a swimmable swimmable fishable harbor, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what year is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is the report card is covering twenty fifteen. So, um, you know, they took samples throughout the year in twenty fifteen and. And so this is technically this reports the halfway point, even though obviously we're we're more than halfway to 2020 now. They they set the goal originally in 2010, and but this is really only the third time they've they've uh, issued this report with the same consistent measurements, where they're saying, you know, well, the, you know, the harbor is still rated an F. The Gwynn's Falls is now rated a D, a D instead of an F. But but as other as some people said to me, I mean, the Gwynn's Falls doesn't the, the Gwynn's Falls doesn't flow to the Inner Harbor. The Gwynn's Falls flows. To the middle branch, uh, so kind of on the on the Westport Port Covington side right. of the water. Um, so even even with improvement in that, it doesn't really doesn't affect do the much. Harbor. It doesn't affect the inner harbor. Um, the inner harbor is you know from the is the Jones Falls watershed, and then like the Herring Run, for example, that flows to the Back River. So it's all all of this pollution across these stream watersheds in Baltimore and Baltimore County. You know, have, have effects on different parts of the the bay, and, and people do. Has anybody thought about what? Are there any dangers for people kayaking? Or people who actually fish and eat the crabs and fish that are in the harbor? You see that all the time. Um, I mean, there are definitely. You know, I hear concerns from folks like Blue Water Baltimore about the, that the city is not really. There's not signs posted everywhere that that make clear that this water is not safe to touch. Uh, I was running in Canton the other week, and I saw this woman when it was nice out before it was raining gross forever. Uh, and I saw some before woman. Before we became Seattle. <laughs> yeah. I saw a woman fishing out her kid's soccer ball with like a stick, and I kind of thought about it as I ran by, and I was like, she really doesn't know. And I, I turned around, and I went back, and I said, hey, I cover the environment for the sun, and I can tell you that that, that ball is not safe for your kid to play with now. Um 
and she said, oh, okay, I'll take it home and wash it off. But in my head, I was like, I would, I would just throw it away. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could wash it off. But, but yeah, no, there certainly is like a lack of understanding with how much of a health hazard it is. I mean, or I see pictures on Twitter of, you know, something, stuff happening in the inner harbor and somebody shows that, uh, recently I forget what it was, but somebody fell in the harbor, like on a nice Saturday when there's lots of people in the harbor and they took a picture of the guy being like, Hey, what an idiot. He, he jumped in the harbor and me, myself and other people were responding no, like he should go to a hospital. You know, if you have people joke about like flesh eating bacteria, but like that's an, a legitimate concern. If you have a, you know, a cut or something like you need like they, they put you on antibiotics if you if you come in contact with that water. That's pretty frightening when you think about the, 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 that. And, and, and I, <clears throat> I think about it myself. I mean, for years without thinking about it, I mean, I used to kayak. My buddy Lisa Baltimore had a Klepper kayak. We used to kayak from the inner harbor all the way down around the harbor and down mm-hmm. into the bay and back again and we were putting our yeah. health at risk really we didn't realize well, it right? yeah i mean and and you know not to be too dire about it because people do do that you know people kayak and and adam linquist from the healthy harbor initiative when he re- released this report and talked to me about it he was saying there's also so much that people don't realize you know people are using it to kayak to paddleboard to you know just enjoy the water but you know, acknowledging at the same time that it comes with these big risks. And so, the other so some of the other things you were talking about here, which really, I mean, we talked about a lot on the air for years, is when and to no avail this has happened between the a plastic bag fee or banning plastic bags, bottle deposit system you wrote about funds coming from penalties and fines, which leads directly to the article that you wrote as well about the lack of enforcement where those fines would come from mm-hmm. for any of the money. Does these all tie in together? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So first of all, yeah, you mentioned those efforts that advocates have pushed for as a way to clean up the bay and, and to make it swimmable and fishable. You know, largely they haven't happened. Um, and yes, a lot of environmentalists would say that general enforcement isn't happening. Um, the, a, a group of uh, a bunch of environmental groups wrote a letter to Ben Grumbles, the secretary of MDE, recently saying they're concerned about a declining number of cases that are being referred to the attorney general's office for prosecution. Uh, I have, you know, it's something I've been interested in and have sort of poked around that, but it's still kind of early in the Hogan administration to, you know, I guess see a big picture. But but they're saying that even since the latter years of the O'Malley administration, that, right. yeah, mm-hmm. that these numbers of referrals have been declining, and there's been just more of a, uh, on the part of MDE, uh, they're more favoring what they call like um, sort of a cooperative, uh, I don't know, approach to enforcement where instead of slapping someone on the wrist and finding them and telling them to stop, they're saying, okay, you know, you're, you are polluting and you're, you know, maybe in violation with your permit or in violation with the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act. You know, how can we help you come into compliance with that? But, you know, and I reached out to the attorney general's office to see if they would have anything to say about it, thinking I would just get a comment. And Brian Frosch got on the phone with me and said, you know, I am concerned uh, because I don't think it's the same you know, this cooperative approach is not the same as enforcement, you know, in the traditional sense of law enforcement, because you're, you know, companies, if they're polluting, it's usually because it's too expensive for them to, to stop polluting or, you know, to clean up whatever they're emitting or, or releasing into the harbor. But Ryan Frosch is saying, well, that's not fair. We're letting these companies continue to have this ec- the economic advantage that comes with polluting when other people are spending money to follow the law. And, you know, that that's not fair to those companies. 
uh, or plants or whatever they may be. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these these groups are saying, you know, what's up with this? No, no, I know, and I think that that I mean, so I mean, that's why I'm looking forward to what you're going to be doing. So, you're going to be are you going to pursue these in in in, in over the coming months and year? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely. Uh, Trying to stay on top of yeah what they're doing with enforcement. I've you know done some PIA requests for different things, and um, I hadn't thought of that. What they said about the you know they just asked for numbers of case referrals to to the AG's office. So that that's one interesting thing. But it'd yeah. be interesting to know which which companies who's not being fined, right? Right, for right. Doing these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we I've asked for yeah just in, enforcement actions in general, and it's it's not easy to to get you know to because they're reluctant to or because it's public information right yeah yeah We're, no i mean they've they've responded to requests um but it's i just yeah like i said it's hard to see a, a big picture yet uh or, or like any sort of smoking gun or something i mean right 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 but yeah it would be very interesting how this goes i'm looking forward to seeing the the work that you uh you bring to us in the coming months for this. Thank you. I think that, that you've been doing some great work. Thanks. Scott Dance is the environmental reporter for The Sun um, and, and and weather, I should add, yeah. as we talked about before. And uh, thanks for coming by the studio. Thank Appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. We're about to have a conversation with Rena Steinzer. Rena Steinzer is a professor at the University of Maryland School of Law, founder of the Center for Progressive Reform. Uh, was we were talking about the the, the article we found in the Sun uh, that talks about uh, how the lawsuits around pollution and other issues we've been covering a great deal have declined. And we're going to find out more about that. Rena, welcome. Good to have you back in the show again. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So this is. Um, it was really interesting. I actually, I wish I could say I was shocked to hear this, but I really wasn't completely shocked to hear it. But let's talk about the the the, the, the breadth of what you what what's happening here with Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Blue Water Baltimore, Maryland League of Conservation Voters sending a letter to uh, Secretary Ben Grumbles, uh, head of the Department of the Environment, uh, about enforcement policies. So talk in a broad sense what's what what motivated that. What happened? Well, we were uh, very dismayed to discover that enforcement continues to drop. And by enforcement, I mean the government suing people who are in violation and assessing penalties as well as making them clean up their act. And we discovered based on the Maryland Department of Environment's own figures that in the first full year of the Hogan administration, enforcement had declined by 18 percent. I want to add that in the last three years, including, of course, the last days of the O'Malley administration, enforcement had dropped by uh, 35 percent. And when I say this, I mean referring cases to the attorney general, in this case, Brian Frosch. We also wrote the letter to him in hopes he can take some action here. Any response from either party? Uh, Attorney General Frosch was quoted in the newspaper as saying he is committed to enforcement and he wished he they would get more cases. But, yeah, but he can't enforce... Uh, he can go to court. But, but he, he has to be given the cases he needs the from, cases. The, from the other right. department, from the Department of the Environment. Right. So, but, but let's, let's, the, the numbers are pretty interesting here. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned before the, the, the history of this because... Um, it's not just under Governor Hogan's administration. No. I mean, it's, it began to occur over the last few years, the last years of O'Malley's administration as well. It's a bad right? culture. 
bad culture? It's a disturbing culture. What does that mean? Well, the philosophy is that you can't push business too hard because you might create an unfavorable environment for business in the state. This is what uh, certain politicians are constantly telling us. The problem with that, of course, is that it leaves the rest of us exposed With an unfavorable environment. With an unfavorable (laughs) environment. Exactly right. (laughs) And, you know, there's not – it's not for the public to compensate for this. It should – if – the best way to make sure everybody complies with the law is to be firm with those who don't. I mean we know this – the Internal Revenue Service doesn't give you a pass because you say – you're creating an unfavorable environment for taxpayers. So um, let, let's, let's go to the history of this. I mean, so are you also saying that in years before the early O'Malley administrations, before that, Ehrlich or, 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 or other administrations were more vigilant in this? Well, I'm saying they haven't put enough emphasis on it, but that it's getting more and more striking as the job is uh, there's a shortfall between what they should be doing and the resources they have available. So they should be increasing the resources or they should be reshuffling the resources. What they shouldn't be doing is taking environmental cops off the street. That being the bringing cases? Bringing cases, disco- inspecting, figuring out who is exceeding their permit, who is uh, dumping hazardous materials, who is not monitoring carefully enough, preventing pollution, all of those things. So let me take this a bit by bit here. So so when, when you just said you need more policing, so in this day of pulling back on state budgets, uh, is, is part of the issue that the Department of Environment does not have enough inspectors? I mean, I've heard this when it comes yes. to farming and nitrogen and phosphorus, that there are not enough people actually to go out and 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 take the phosphorus management tool to, to, to and, and and enforce it because there's not enough people on the ground to work it. Is that is that what you're saying? That's is exactly what I'm saying. There are two things to add. One is that we are uh, not as broke as we have been in the past. Uh, spending has been, in fact, should be uh, restored for a lot of important tasks, but also that it's not that expensive to have inspectors. In fact, the irony of this whole thing is that uh, Secretary Grumble says what he believes in is compliance counseling. So Which means what? He's going to sit down with everybody and talk to them about the law and how it operates and give them a second bite at the apple and help them out. And that's the kind of thorough coverage that you can't afford when you have limited resources. When you have limited resources – what you need to do is engage in deterrence-based enforcement. So you penalize those who violate the law. Everybody else sees it and they all comply. This works everywhere. So you, but when you hear that they want to engage companies and to, to try to help them change their behavior, you think that's a waste of time? No, I don't think that's a waste of time. I think that it's being emphasized at the expense of making sure that someone who cheats on pollution laws to save money, you should first of all get back the money that they avoided paying and you should penalize them for doing that. There's a time and place for counseling and there's a time and place for enforcement. But we never seem to see aggressive enforcement. So let's go through some of this. I'm, I'm just curious how this, how this, how this actually w- worked. So when – 
we said that when you, in your letter to them uh, that the air pollution referrals decreased by 50 percent. Let's just stop there for a moment. What does that mean? What, 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 air pollution from what? What does that mean to have a referral? I mean, what industries are we talking about? We're talking about power plants. We're talking about factories. We're talking about sources that need to have a permit and have air emissions limited. And if the limits are not done, if you don't put pollution control equipment on your facility or you it's not working or you don't get it on fast enough or it's broken, you should pay a penalty. So what are the consequences <laughs> – so what are the consequences? I'm taking each one one by one here before, before we let you go. What, what, what are the consequences of not enforcing? What, what are the environmental and health consequences that happen when air pollution is not enforced? Thank you for asking this because that's the ultimate question. We live in a non-entainment area under the Clean Air Act. Baltimore and Washington have had intractable problems for years. And what this means is there are times in the summer when we're warned not to let our children go outside because we have such serious smog problems. And we've been talking about cleaning it up, but we never seem to quite get down to it. And everybody has to do their bit. People who drive cars need to have them inspected. Which why we have emissions tests. Exactly. And if you are driving without the sticker, you get nailed, as I can personally attest. But <laughs> you mean uh, one of our environmental oh, lawyers? I forgot to put it on. That was my excuse. <laughs> but seriously, in all seriousness, it is uh, very important that factories be held accountable. So uh, let me go to the next one: lead poisoning prevention. We've talked a lot about lead poisoning declined by forty six percent. So lead poisoning prevention has become a huge issue. Whether you're talking about this Baltimore City schools where children cannot drink the water out of the fountains to we've seen what happened in Flint to the issues of lead poisoning that directly uh, were engaged in the, in, the, in the death of Freddie Gray and what happened with Freddie Gray and not the, t- the tens of thousands of people in, the, in our communities who are poisoned and, 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 uh, um, and it has affected their cognitive abilities. I mean it's a, that's a crisis really in many communities. So, so talk about who you're talking about here when you're talking about lead enforcement – uh, lead paint enforcement, I mean lead poisoning enforcement, who would that – who would be targeted? Who, would, who are you talking about? Well, uh, the landlords would be targeted if they were operating housing that was not up to snuff and if they weren't meeting their registration requirements. I will say that uh, we've done better. The lead levels are getting lower and lower But we're still not there yet. I mean, there are estimates that Baltimore children are three times uh, more likely to be – have lead levels, high lead levels than elsewhere in the country. And it's also not just in Baltimore. There is housing that was constructed before 1978 that had lead paint. It was considered very desirable because it uh, retained its color. And the lead paint has had as much as 40% lead content, and it takes a very small amount of that chipping, peeling, flaking paint. So what does it mean for them to, to, to go after and prosecute them? I mean, there are still tens of thousands of people living in homes right. with lead right. in the city, and not just in the city, but across the state of Maryland, but in the city specifically. Right. So, I mean, what does it mean to go after them? What, well, what, what it, means, it means that that um, paint that it degenerates needs to be 
removed or contained. And there are lots of very practical remedies you can do. So, for example, one of the biggest hazards is windows that go up and down and generate dust when that happens. I've seen, I have a picture of my own son chewing on the windowsill. Uh, He was living in a house that didn't have lead paint. But all of those things can be encapsulated with plastic so that they're much safer. And what we need the landlords to do is to take care of that. <laughs> and the other thing you talked about in your in your in your letter is a twenty seven percent drop in the cases around clean water referrals. Now, what does that entail? Well, that entails um, everything from sewage overflows, to- which just happened to Baltimore not a couple of weeks ago. We had this. Again, gigantic overflow into the harbor. Absolutely, which is uh, something that really needs to be addressed. But it also means that if you are not treating your discharge or an industrial facility, you're not treating it well enough, you need to put new equipment on and you need to do it when they tell you to do it and not drag your feet. And uh, given the tremendous pressure to restore the bay, it's just very disturbing that there would not be Uh, more cases. And let me also mention that it's not only the number of cases that trouble us, it's the very low settlements, which are very, uh, you know, penalties are so low that you almost uh, are tempted to not comply and then pay whatever it is down the line because you are better off that way. So two final things here. One is what, what about the argument that the government makes, other people make, that the cost of this is too great for industries to bear, which is will chase the industries out, or, or that, I mean, it's not inexpensive to do what they have to do, correct? That's true, although there has never been a reliable study that shows that environmental regulations are the reasons that people leave a state much more likely is uh, labor costs and energy. takes a lot to relocate. So t- tell me finally, what, so what steps can the, you and these groups that have wrote and written this letter to the Secretary of Environment, what can you actually – what's your next steps? What can you actually do to make this happen, to have the enforcement pushed? Well, you know, it took us a while. Uh, we gave uh, Secretary Grumbles and we are still giving him an opportunity to show us that he can do a good job. But after we got a year of data, we're very concerned. And because we're in constant dialogue with him, we hope we can persuade him to emphasize this very important part of his program. I have to have the cops back on the beat. Raina Stanch, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you for stopping by. Professor at the University of Maryland School of Law and a founder of the Center for Progressive Reform. Good luck on this journey. You're listening to Soundbite here on the Mark Steiner Show. We have to take a short break, but when we return, I sit down with Willie Flowers, Executive Director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, to get an update on their urban farming operation and hear about their latest community health initiatives.
Welcome back. You're listening to Sound Bites right here on the Mark Steiner Show, produced in Baltimore, out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and broadcast on WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. We're about to have a conversation with Willie Flowers, who is executive director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance. And as we have over the last several years talking about the farm they've created in Park Heights and the issues of health and also this remarkable CSA to see where it is this year. The pictures I've been seeing on Facebook have just been astounding of all the people coming down to Park Heights to work. Really good to see you, man. Welcome. Yeah, good to see you again. So how many years is this that the farm has been? This is um, um, probably seven years of uh, real production. Wow. And um, we've sustained it for that long. Um, we always tell the story about the first year where we didn't produce what is the, what's, what's the story about the first year? <laughs> the story about the first year was <laughs> we had some um, working with um, – a huge volunteer day uh, at the time. The mayor was uh, Mayor Dixon, and Hope Williams organized America Online to do like a huge, like one hundred person volunteer day. And we knew that we we could have um, a lot of work done in one day with all that. So <clears throat> we had planned to have this uh, topsoil uh, brought in, but at the last minute, the um, contractor wouldn't drive up the hill because of the truck. <laughs> And I'm thinking, like, you know, this is a truck. But he wouldn't do it. And at the last minute, um, uh, Ed Miller was on helping us with Civic Works. And I said, Ed, can you pull a rabbit out of a hat? And he um, he called a contractor immediately. And they were able to bring some topsoil over. What we didn't know, and it was uh, it saved the day. But we, what we didn't know was it didn't have it didn't have any nutrients in the soil. So. <laughs> We didn't grow anything the first year, <laughs> but uh, by the second year we had uh, we learned about. Um, did, did any of you know about farming when you started uh, this? <laughs> well, everybody had a, a a little idea. We knew to get plants, but you know we had our own idea of um, how to set it up. We wanted to do everybody have their own plot. Uh, Karen Evans was involved, and um, the first year was much of that. So we had some idea. She had done the master gardener program. And on another site, we had uh, another effort. But uh, so it was a sad experience after a few weeks. <laughs> but the following year, you know, I consulted with a lot of people. I actually did the Master Gardener program oh, you uh, did. myself. Mm-hmm. And I met Larry Close, um, who's like the Johnny Appleseed of uh, uh, community gardening. And I talked to uh, uh, Denzel. He told me about mushroom compost. And, uh, you know, that stuff works magic, you know. So since then, we've been producing at a pretty high level. And, you know, and everybody's been enjoying it. But when did the CSA start? The CSA did not start. It's, it kind of grew to be like a paid CSA because we had to um, figure out a way to pay for, for everything. Because, you know, I've long s- stopped being a believer in grant funding, always being there. So we at least wanted to pay for the supplies and the plants and the seeds. And that's kind of what the front-end payment does. So the first year we had good production. You know, we got a little confidence and, as the young people say, swag. <laughs> and um, so it kind of led from just being a bunch of people on Saturdays producing food and taking it home to because everybody couldn't always be there to kind of operationalizing it. And, you know, we called it Growing um, Food Together, CSA. 
to because that's it. That's basically all we were doing initially. And the concept actually came from Larry Close because a lot of community gardens do individual beds where people or families have a bed. But that doesn't always work because everybody's not as committed. You know, people go on vacation, people get sick. So his idea was to bring everybody in on one day, one or two days of the week and work together. And one of those days you um, uh, harvest the food and share it. And um, so that was the basic concept. But we had people who could not literally um, come to, you know, to work. So um, but they were open to paying for it. In fact, they would give us donations, you know, so. Um, we looked at everybody else's CSAs, the traditional CSAs, you know, is with a farmer who, you know, you can pay into um, um, his farm. And we just. It's expensive, four or five, six hundred dollars exactly, a year exactly. or a season, three to four hundred dollars a year. Right. right. So we, um, you know, beat the price. We had the land. So we're not paying for as much as farmers are. Um, I think the time is probably the same. <laughs> but um, but so that's how it got started. So we're, you know, we, we've been rocking that for that method for probably three years officially. And, um, it's, you know, it's going well. well. I know we've covered the CSA the last few years anyway, the last couple of years. Um, and that's just for the listeners who don't know it. I mean, the Park Edge community being a working class community, black community. I mean, this CSA is very different. I mean, in terms of what you charge, you mentioned how that whole right. thing works. And, right. And, um, it, you know, it is. But once people... It's kind of hard to imagine paying, you know, our top price is three fifty up front for, you know, food that you don't know you're going to get. And it is a faith effort because anything could happen, you know, uh, any, you know, it can be, you know, anything could happen. So you just put in faith in the fact that we can pull it off. And, um, you know, the only complaint we've ever had is that, you know, people get too much food and they have to reduce their, uh, you know, the, the amount. So. We haven't had any major, you know, disappointments in that regard at this point. You know, we have pretty good water access, so that accounts for a lot of it. But doesn't uh, don't you have a system where people like pay can pay fifteen dollars a month or whatever? Yeah, they can they can pay um, what they you know we we you know at the end of the day um, we want people to eat it right you know so we we give away a lot of food we do what we consider uh, community shares of particularly senior citizens who may not be able to afford it. Um, and we make plans to not only give it to them, but we'll deliver it to to them. And um, families who ask for it, you know, we're not rigid in that regard. So we want to make it possible for everybody. I mean, we, you know, oftentimes have food left over. Uh, because when you get into the season, like I said, people go on vacation and this kind of thing, so they can't come pick up their share. And it's kind of a commitment because the convenience of a grocery store is you can go anytime. Right. But um, once we, you know, we close it up, you know, you got to wait until the next next day. So we do two um, pickup days a week and um, hoping that, it, you know, somebody can get 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 their day right. And like I said, it's 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 it, it was tough for me when I was participating in a CSA, and and my day was a Friday, and I just could never make it every day. I had the same know? issue, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so, I want to take a step back a minute before we go back into what's happening right now with the farm and the CSA, because it made me think about a conversation we were having back and forth this week that that um, by email about your and others who I would imagine kind of founding philosophy on the idea of healthy eating and what's lacking, especially in 
in poor working class black communities with access to food is kind of there was a, there's an underlying real issue and, and ideology that you have here with this. Yeah, I mean, it's basic for me. I mean, in my situation, um, and, you know, I have to get personal because it's kind of why I do this, but I have a 95 and a 96-year-old grandmother. And wow. um, both Nancy Flowers is 96 and my grandmother, Katherine Waters, is 95. And they're, they've outlived their kids, some of their kids, and they're healthier than some of their kids. <laughs> and um, and I think the reason for it is, and I just heard uh, Michael Twitty today uh, oh, yes. talk about the legacy of food in the black community and uh, the uh, portion control, forced portion control. And um, I, I do believe that because uh, they were, you know, they su- were sustained on um, a little food, but it's always the better parts of the food. You know, it could just be beans and rice. It could be collard greens, beans and rice. Uh, but a large meal was, you know, uh, a very, you know, not that it was rare, but you did it around celebratory uh, times of the year. And, um, you know, Sunday dinner was a big dinner. And even with that, the steak that you eat at Ruth Chris was a steak that could feed like 12 people. But now people are actually sitting down eating that whole steak. <laughs> <laughs> and I I think that, you know, we just don't need to do that all the time, you know. But people are doing it. And they, they uh, have, you know, people have uh, resources enough, whether they are black or white, to eat a steak every day. And I don't, I don't know if that's going to end well. In some kind of way, um, it is better to, you know, consider your portions in that regard regardless of how you feel about consumption of animal protein. So, but but the idea of, of actually being able to control, the community being able to control its food right. source. And- In this case, it's the case that we have a lot of land and um, our lots, rather, that are not being used. So, the, you know, the energy, I think, should be put behind making those lots into food. And that's that's kind of what we've done. And if we had more resources, we could do more. But, um, you know, getting people to buy into that is the, the missing piece. Uh, the community organizing side of it is a, is a challenge because it's time-consuming. And when you're growing food, you can't do both. But, yeah, I, I wish it were the case that um, we could enlighten people on what to do in lots. And it's happening. It's happening one way or the other. But I do think more resources should be, be there to pull pull it off and the protections that go with it. The city has a process. Um, I don't think there really should be a process, but I think that, you know, if there's an empty lot that's going to grow weeds all summer long, that that, that lot can grow tomatoes, and um, people can be healthier from eating what they grow. And the um, all the nutrients that come out of the ground are good. Are you just – how are you doing this? I mean, are you, if you expand this year, you're taking over more We've, lots? Um, we, we're up to about two acres this year. We wow. collaborate with the Park Heights uh, Renaissance on a, a, a plot with two hoop houses. Um, they, they got funding for several years ago. So we, we're growing out of the hoops. Um, we have a, probably another half acre in ground that we're growing out of and plan to produce a lot of food. We have like a half acre on our site and another plot where we're doing potatoes um, and and herbs. And so, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun. We did um, about 10,000 pounds of food last year, and looks like we're going to have more than that this year. But we've, you know, we've, we, we try to target around 50 
uh, families in our CSA. We're almost there. Um, you know, people come and go throughout the year, but that's our target, our baseline number. You, you, so, remember one time you were talking about even chickens. Um, well, eggs, that's that going to take. Well, we 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 have. It turns out we have fox foxes on each one of these sites because we're close to the Silburn or uh, Gwen's Falls Trail. Um, so I don't know about the the chickens. Um, we we everybody who uh, comes around they can they want to do it, and I, I don't know if that uh, would would last long. You know, we can build a coop and yeah, keep we, out there. We can build it. It's just the same thing about this gardening stuff. You still got to sustain it. Somebody's got to get out there. And so do you have a full time person working on the farm now? Or is it, we kind of have it? a balance of um, volunteer volunteers. Um, I'm out there. Um, uh, you know. A, a lot of days, but we have a, a, a substantial volunteer group that kind of just came about, and we're happy about that. So um, we're able to sustain those um, two significant sites um, with um, um, some people who are uh, retirees and uh, folks who just love gardening, and we are able to um, to pull it off. I'm really curious about the, the, the other piece of this for you, which is this you know, you talked about the empty lots in the city and, and thinking about the your kind of vision and the vision people have about what could really happen in this town with all this empty lots. I mean, I saw a piece in the paper in the Baltimore Brew um, by Mark Reuter the other day where he said that it's not 15,000. He looked at the zip codes and, and he looked at the postal delivery rates from the post office and said there are at least 50,000 abandoned houses in the city of Baltimore, 50,000. Yeah, I think we got twenty five hundred in the area, of at Park least Heights. in Park Heights, right? And also probably an equal, if not greater, number of of, of empty lots. Mm-hmm. So, what's the idea about your, your the vision about what could be in the city? You got you doing your work there. I mean, Heber Brown's got his food uh, church food security network happening. Um, our friends, the Blues, have their farm. So, what? Mm-hmm. How does that all fit together? I mean, everybody is every one of those you just named are different. Um, ours is private. Our site. Our demonstration garden on our Afia community teaching garden is um it's we own that land um the woodland site is you know technically owned by the city. The blues have private land, and I'm sure Heber is using um church, church land, land. Right. so we're kind of lucky because we could be doing this even with the old law, but it is the case that people uh have a challenge getting onto city owned land and that but there's a process they might not know about it, but I just think that you know. I think people should just quiet and grow food. You know, I'm 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 not that that's 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 a, a radical idea, but it's more radical to um, not have access to food and to, to die from something that uh is is curable or preventable. Um so um I just I would encourage everybody just grab a, a a piece of land if it's owned by the city, if it's owned by somebody private, uh talk to them, get it and grow food. Um, I don't think anybody's going to be upset about that if you're uh, because if they haven't been taking care of it and you have weeds throughout the spring and summer, I think a well manicured, you know, five or six rows wouldn't hurt anything. So what was this on the Facebook page we had the other day? I was really interested that um, um, you had Eric Jackson there, but that the Walter Robb, CEO of Whole Foods, right? Came. He um, he came to our um, campus yesterday. He was invited on a tour by Eric Jackson, um, and Eric Jackson is the local activist. Exactly, he's doing work in, in the, in the on the food justice front, and um, 
he just wanted to um, a site to do a discussion. This was a um, multiple meeting because he met with uh, Eric, um, and then he met with um, Tiffany Welch's organization called uh, uh, I forget the Boundaries or No Boundaries No Boundaries, no boundaries uh, Coalition No Boundaries Coalition who's right. doing work at Pennsylvania Avenue. So we were just um, a part of it, but he was there, and he's. Uh, they seem to be very excited about choosing a location for um, whole cities. I think they call it um, effort in in West Baltimore somewhere. So uh, they were very open about their interests and about their mentality of um, not being um, gentrifiers, but being a wholesome part of the community. Um, by you know determining the best way to do it and not just coming in and building something, so it was a good meeting. Um, and I think Eric Jackson is kind of the um, point person in Baltimore for that effort, and um, hopefully something good will come out of it. A lot of cities have attempted, people have attempted across country in Detroit and other places to rebuild an urban agricultural movement that actually feeds people and gets things and, and, and changes the landscape, um, and they've often had a hard time doing it, but we seem to have, there just seems to be a lot of energy in this city. Right. The people doing the things I just described, you know, the Heber and mm-hmm. Brown and and, and, um, and other kind of places around, people I've run into who are doing, raising hydroponics on Greenmount Avenue to people who are raising tilapia in a place we won't disclose in Sandtown, mm-hmm. the, to feeding people and selling food. I mean, it, it seems to me that there's such a momentum from the bottom up here, which is different in other cities. Right. We got to harness that somehow. Well, I think it's it's just a matter of making it easy, and I I I believe that when more people um, uh, in their community who they can identify with do it, and they can make it sound easy, uh, more people will do it. And of course, if they eat the food and understand the benefit of the food, because I don't think I don't, you know, I'll say this because I do understand where there is a need of um, having startup money to do a lot of this. Um, but it's not a lot of money, um, and all the guidance is there. They just need, you know, people need the resources. And uh, one thing I'm always struck by is the intimidation factor of, you know, you know, doing your own food or even buying quality food. But when I drive up and down the streets in Baltimore, everybody's got on new clothes. Nobody is naked. And so I just think that when we start putting value in what we put into our food as a, into our bodies, as opposed to what we put on, wear on our bodies, that we'll have some sense of um, how we can avoid chronic disease and um, be healthier and save money. Because if you can grow your food, um, there's a family in um, who helped us get our uh, garden off the ground, Natty, Natalie Finneger, who is the um, deputy director at the Office of the Public Defender. Uh-huh. And oh, yeah, right, right. her family, uh, they at one point were growing, eating out of their garden for up to nine months of the year. And they have the benefit and access enough to, like, do their own meats throughout the year. Uh, they're, like, you know, uh, tremendously uh, a high percentage sustainable um, without, you know, the need of grocery stores. I think she just jokes about having to go get flour from the grocery store during some periods. And I think that, you know, and uh, and Larry Close and his family have done the same thing for years. I think there's some value in that. It's um, I don't think it is as much work as we think it is because we've been all been taken away from, you know, doing our own 
uh, uh, stuff, but that little the little time that's in it is it beats the time you're you know you're waiting in line at McDonald's, right? So, and McDonald's is 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 and fast foods are often the preferred way of getting nutrition in this world, right? right? And it, and I don't know what happened. <laughs> so, but but the model you're talking about here, I mean, it's it it sounds some people say, oh, that's far fetched, but maybe really not when you're Think about if that if you had, um, for want of a better term, 100 people living in a community and you were able to get right. 10 or 15 people actually were growing food to sustain themselves and others. I mean, that's a, that's not mm-hmm. an impossible idea. Right. We, I mean, we're, I think we're going to prove it um, with our, you know, the amount of food that we have coming out. We have some multiple collard greens. We have a lot of greens. So um, I, I don't think I love anybody's going to yeah, good. We got all <laughs> Types of greens, you know, kale, collards, uh, cabbages, uh, the spinach, all that stuff coming up. Um, so, it, I mean, hopefully it, it we'll, ha- we'll have as many hands around as we have um, in the uh, CSA or who have volunteered with us so that we can share it all and inspire some people to do the same thing. So we need to continue this. Maybe we can come by and just take a walk through the... Yeah, anytime. I mean... Talk to you know, folks who are working you know, there. We are. Yeah, we, we have a couple of big... Um, Volunteers days. We've been one of in those. The ground. One of your volunteer days. We um, right now we're doing mostly Saturdays. There is a group that uh, is there pretty much every other day, if not every day, doing something. Um, but the big days are Saturdays, and um, we we when the summer moves along, we do Wednesdays um, when we start uh, transitioning to summer crops. So yeah. So if people if people want to see more of what you're doing or be involved and volunteer, how, mm-hmm. how they do that? How- Just call our office, um, 410-542-8190, 410-542-8190. Or you can go to our website, phcha.org, um, for any other other details. Um, and that's that's really it, as simple as that. You can email me at wflowers at phcha.org, wflowers at phcha.org. And we'll put all that in the website too. Right, and we got exciting. We we were invited to do a camp um, uh, with the Bainham Foundation with the uh, Baltimore uh, Junior Academy. So we're going to do a camp. Uh, we're going to do their camp. Our portion is called Carver Club. So we're going to basically get into the uh, the historic reality of uh, Black folks in farming and agriculture, and um, just a whole conversation on urban agriculture in, gen- in general so that young people can see what they can do, you know, with growing food. So that's, that? really that's the summer? That's going to be this summer in July for four or five weeks and I think six weeks in July. Are they do it in your community or you take them somewhere else? They Well, they, we're going to do tours, but uh, the, the, the camp is on Cold Spring at the Baltimore Junior Academy um, School. And so they'll do tours of 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 gardens, um, particularly ours, and our farmers market. Um, but we are, you know, it's a it's a opportunity that I wanted to test to see what the energy would be. Um, we're gonna grow, you know, gonna do a plot for them on the site so that they can, um, you know, have access to eat it, and they also get to visit our farm. That's exciting. We'll have to check that out too. So I think we need to do just a continuing story on Park Heights and what's happening with yeah, so food and health and and, and when is and before we roll. So when when's the run? Oh, um, July sixteenth. July sixteenth. So um, yeah, we want to invite everybody to the the Baltimore Road Race and um, please come. 
Well, we'll uh, come, come sometime in June. We'll do another piece of story here, and we'll remind folks in July to come on out to the run. Exactly. Willie Flowers, thanks so much, man, for coming right. by. Thanks for inviting me. It's always fun. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our theme music is by Walt Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.